Hello and welcome to this week's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher, Managing Director at Montford Real Estate, and I'm delighted to be joined by Colin Godfrey, who's Chief Executive at Tritax Big Box REIT. And B-Box is celebrating its 10-year anniversary this year. Colin, fantastic to see you. Tell us about some of the genesis of B-Box over the last 10 years and a bit more of the background on Tritax and your own experience in the sector. Well, good morning, Andrew, and thank you so much for having me on your show. It's a real pleasure to be here. The genesis of the business goes back to, well, I started working with Tritax in 2001 and then became a partner there in 2004. But the business has more recently in its current guise emanated from 2013. And in terms of how that market has changed in those 10 years, we've come a long way from where the market was and certainly that focus on customers, which you have very much pioneered in your business. That's something that just didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. So what was the rationale for the business? So it coincided with us having spun from a business that were creating closed-end products for the high net worth market in commercial property. And we wanted to create something. Some of our customers were saying to us, look, we love what you're doing, but we want to invest in a larger scale with you. And can you create something that's more institutional in nature? And that got us thinking about what sort of structure we might use. And it coincided with residential REITs coming into law. And that was the stimulus, really. We started thinking, well, could we launch a REIT? And the rest is history. But as for the character of the product that we were trying to create, well, firstly, we can get into the whole logistics idea shortly. But the genesis was really high quality. We didn't see anything in that space. You know, there was a gap really between what people were investing in for their pensions and putting money in gilts, for instance, and then more mainstream commercial property offers which we felt were a bit further up the risk curve. So we wanted to create something in between that was really high quality in terms of real estate offer, but high quality customers. And that talks to your point, really. Our philosophy partly was sort of engendered in the ability to have first mover advantage in the logistics market to be able to grow quite quickly, capture scale, which of course is particularly important in the listed space. And in doing so with larger buildings, create relationships with the larger scale customers. Mm. And in terms of big box, how big is big? Well, our largest building, which we developed at Littlebrook by the side of the River Thames at the QET Bridge at Dartford, we let to Amazon a few years back, is 2.34 million square feet. So that's quite a number of football pitches uh, over four stories. And it's one of the largest buildings in Europe. And does that prevent you from growing as quickly as you might? Or the size of the buildings? Mm. Because, I mean, it's pretty difficult to build a 2.4 million foot building. The challenge isn't really in the construction. It's more in the planning and Yeah, I thought thought you'd say that. (laughs) (laughs) And land of sufficient scale that has the right topography and the right Mm. locations that ticks the boxes of those occupiers. And so, you know, you might naturally think as you drive across the UK, well, there's plenty of green fields that are capable of putting a big building on actually... Ticking all of those boxes, you know, in terms of infrastructure, access to main arterial routes, etc., and having the right land mass to be able to accommodate one of those buildings is not that easy. Mm. So, of course, staffing is the biggest issue, isn't it, for a lot of your occupiers? Labour, and this was one of the things that we picked up on right at the start when we originally started focusing on big boxes, because people were saying to us, "Well." surely, Colin, you're going into all of the wrong locations. And I said, well, are we? What are the right locations? And they said, well, you know, you're moving to locations which aren't considered traditionally prime. 
And I think the market has evolved. You know, the understanding of what Prime is has evolved over time. So we do have those classic locations in the Midlands and the South East, by way of example. But we were also recognising before most other people caught on to it, the emergence of what we call the regional distribution model. And this is where, you know, with the advent of e-commerce, retailers were being pushed to hold larger product lines in more diverse locations so they could get the product to their customers ever mm. more quickly. But of course... Historically, of course, you just have two massive warehouses either end of the country and make do with being on the road for a while. Exactly right. But also the local warehouses stocked smaller product lines because back in the day when everything operated out of a high street store, you know, you might have the Oxford Street store by way of example that held 100% of your product line. But if one of your other stores was, say, for instance, in Fife in Scotland, it might have held 50% of your product line and therefore your local warehouse only needed to stock 50% of your product. Along came the internet and you had to be able to sell every product to everybody, everywhere across the nation. And it wasn't good enough to say, no, we're not prepared to sell you know, half of our products to you because you don't live in London. So you can see the emergence immediately. There was this big propulsion in terms of demand. And that's where the regional distribution model came in. And you're absolutely right that a lot of, particularly the e-commerce driven customers were looking to capture locations where labor was more plentiful and they weren't cutting each other's throats in competition, driving up labor cost rates, because of course, labor is probably the biggest component part of costs of any operation. And which retailers have got it right? Because when you look across different players over the last 10 years, and it's not just retailers, but companies that have thrived, and take Next as a great example, mm. right? They've thrived because they've got it right. You've got other companies that haven't. Well, look, I think the first thing to say is that Next were naturally ahead of the curve because, you know, they had Next Directory. And so they understood the context of home delivery and how customers thought in terms of... Funny, isn't it? Delivery. A catalogue shop as pioneers of digital retailing. There you go. And of course, you know, Amazon was a bookshop, right? So, yeah. Of course, not so different from Netflix vlogging DVDs to people in the post. Either, but there you go. <laughs> exactly. And so you have to look for that sort of trending. And I think there's lots of learning to be benefited from there as well. But look, I, I'm not going to name other specific companies. But what I would say more generally is that, you know, everybody's had to adapt. I mean, obviously, the pure play retailers have not had the burden of transitioning from a shrinking high street portfolio to a larger online one. And that trend is continuing. Mm. And that obviously produces a lot more challenge because, of course, if you need a new warehouse to serve a burgeoning local market, you can't just go out and necessarily rent one because you've already got yeah. some older warehouses that were serving you know, your high street platform. And, of course, you've still got to stock your high street. So you know, as one component part of your operation is reducing, the other one might be increasing in size. So there are all of those sorts of challenges. But I think in the main, I would say that everyone is on a journey. And of course, you know, there are a whole raft of different challenges at any point in time. I mean, you could point to, you know, to business rates right now, by way of example, mm. producing different challenges. But I think if you look past the retail space, and I think this is where Brexit, I mean, obviously COVID was a stimulus for further online growth, but Brexit's also been, I mean, I call it the sort of deglobalization effect, really. Brexit's had a big effect. And it's not just retailers, it's, you know, manufacturing companies and all sorts of other businesses. We're seeing it massively in the States now with chip makers 
Yeah. And everyone's obviously afraid of the big global situations. But what are you seeing then? So you're seeing active reshoring then within your portfolio. Has that been an increasing trend in recent times? Yes, absolutely. What on, sorts of things? On reshoring. And also, I would say, well, I think it's right the way across the space. I think it's wholesalers. They need to hold product in bulk. It's retailers that would otherwise import product quite quickly from mainland Europe across the channel, which is more challenging now. It's European companies that will be exporting into the UK that now again can't move that product quickly enough or efficiently. So they're taking space in the UK. And so they're now taking space in the UK. And I think manufacturing as well. I think there's more manufacturing coming back to the UK. I mean, just to give you an example of one effect in our own business, following the Russian-Ukraine invasion, we looked at whether or not any of our materials were being sourced from Russia or Ukraine and discovered that they weren't any. However, that review led to us deciding to bring back onshore the majority of our product sourcing. So, yeah, okay, we haven't achieved it with steel, but quite a lot of our product aggregates, raw materials, etc., where we can, we now source from within the UK. It's not just sort of flying the flag, but it's more about the ability to... Well, to understand your supply chain. Understand your supply chain, develop repeat relationships with suppliers, but also for our customers to be able to say to our customers, look, we've got confidence in the timing of being able to deliver those products, those raw materials, et cetera, to deliver your building on time. And we've had fantastic success in that regard. I mean, I think even during COVID, our longest delay in delivery of our buildings was up to four weeks, which was remarkable given the challenges involved. Mm. Well, talk us through that. You're referring there to Tritac Symmetry, which is your land and development platform. What was the rationale for establishing that? How does that work with your core business? And what are the benefits that offers to your customers? Yeah, so I talked about the scale component part of our business, which was obviously acquiring standing investments originally. Yeah. And obviously, we've done that over the last nine and a half years, and our 10-year anniversary is this December. But of course, in itself, we knew we would benefit from yield compression in this space. So when I went into the city in 2013, I explained what was going to happen. I said, look, you know, retail yields are down at, you know, three, three and a half. Industrial logistics yields are sort of six and a half, seven. They're going to swap places. And quite a few people told me I was mad and that I should... But they still had a hangover from Brixton, didn't they? I think there was, well... There was a hangover from Brixton. There was still... Also, people were still dining out on delivery of things like Liverpool One and other shopping malls, weren't they? That's a good point. But also, I think that it's about the speed of change and acknowledging Mm. the disruption in our markets now. So, look, that's something we picked up on. But the reason I mention that is that at that time, we were, I suppose, accumulating a high-quality investment portfolio. Mm. And we knew that to have... Yeah, full service offer as a business to be able to deliver high quality returns without moving significantly at the risk curve that we needed to have other elements within our armory. Mm. And so, so you're not just going and specking stuff, you're working with a customer that's got a requirement. And exactly, exactly right. And so we had an ambition to develop, okay, but we couldn't afford to do that in the early days because it would have impinged too heavily upon our earnings. There's all the cash to deploy, isn't there, on there? And it's a delayed framework, right? So, but we identified and to some degree got lucky because we knew the the guys from DB Symmetry, we knew the guys from Delancey who backed that business. And they'd put 10 years of work building up what I'd describe as the largest land platform in the UK, but it was a land accumulation business at that time. Mm. We acquired that in 2019, that business. So that gave us a turbocharger 
within the body of our business. And so the Symmetry team are contracted to us, but we own all of those real estate assets. So it's yeah. fully embedded yeah. within our business. And of course, what it does now is it gives us the ability to create really high quality modern product at a much more accretive, much more attractive yield on cost. So, you know, what we're doing right now is we're, for instance, our last asset sale, which we did last month was a 4.6% initial yield, 125 million for three assets. And we are reinvesting that into new developments at six and a half percent development yield by way of example that's a good spread and how is the product changing because i'm guessing you're having to spend a bit more money building the sorts of facilities that the apples the amazons the Acadas of today want versus the market back in 2010 yeah or even earlier than that when you know warehouses were warehouses i mean they are now pretty sophisticated buildings i think there's a couple of things i would note here in terms of all of the asset classes I think logistics is out there on its own in terms of the low levels of obsolescence, often overlooked and often underlooked in other asset classes. It has the ability to make a big difference in terms of ESG, and we can perhaps get onto that in a moment. But you're right. I mean, they have become more sophisticated buildings in many different ways. But in many that, cases, they're just the living, breathing robots, aren't they, really? <laughs> well, you see, this is part of the... It's the blurred line of where does the building begin? Exactly right. And this is where we have to be quite disciplined because we own... You know, You're not in the robot building business just yet. Exactly right. <laughs> so we own the real estate platform, everything within the fence, and everything other than one of our assets is actually single let. There's often quite a you know, high sort of security element to that. But they are, you know, you've got high speed internet access now, power is a really important component part. Mm. The buildings are generally more sophisticated, but you're right, a lot of the kit that goes in these buildings is quite specialist and isn't that generic to the marketplace. And we will only fund generic items. So we will put in, for instance, you know, structural mezzanine floors. We'll put in things like LED lighting, solar panels, sprinkler systems, you know, high quality office content, et cetera, et cetera that we believe would appeal to customers more generally. But if it's very specialist, we won't fund those elements. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And you mentioned some of the ESG shifts that we've seen. And that's another area where you have been head and shoulders above the market on. What are some of the principles that are the most important to you? Yeah, look, I think ESG is fascinating because, of course, there's been a huge appreciation for ESG in recent times. And I think it's been led by the investor community and followed by the occupational customers. And we can come on to that in a moment. I think that the driver has lessened in recent times as the market's become more focused on macroeconomic issues. Was that purely a price thing or is it? Yes, I think it is because I think the investors have become more concerned with what's happening to the baseline performance. So it's sort of moved back to fundamentals rather than you know thinking there's enough in it to also sit alongside the benefits of ESG. And it's really important we don't lose sight of that. Well, yeah, I said whether the world ends or not isn't going to be influenced by the risk-free rate going up a few notches. Exactly right. Exactly right. And this <laughs> is where we be need... a bit flippant about it. But... but this is where we need to get the balance right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And so we have always had the philosophy of leading from the front. I mean, I would say that, you know, some customers in the early days had to be virtually dragged through the hedge backwards. And we would say to some of them, well, hold on a minute, you know, we are putting this building to you. These are the things we want to achieve. And you're saying no, and this doesn't accord what you're telling us on your website in terms of your corporate ambition. So how do those two things sort of sit together? That is improving. I think that a lot of customers now recognize the importance of the benefits of ESG. And you've got to have the strength of your convictions. Otherwise, if you leave it to the market, often you'll end up with a substandard product. And the next thing you'll know, 
that product will be sort of outdated mm. in terms of modern requirements. And I guess that's one of the benefits of having that delivery platform within your business is it gives you more control about what you're actually creating and then investing into. Exactly right. So, you know, according to the Green Building Council standards, we are now creating carbon neutral buildings. I think we were one of the first in the UK to commit to that. But of course, it involves offsetting. And it's about making sure that those offsets are appropriate, that they're best in class, that we're offsetting as little as possible. And that in turn means that we've got to work as hard as we possibly can to improve the carbon being created from the production of the raw materials and processes which create these buildings. Mm. But the community side is also something that you're quite involved with, isn't it, Colin, as well? Yes, it is. Look, it's about balance. And we recognise that we have an impact on local communities when we put a new building or a park in that community and so it's about ensuring that we minimize the impact of that park and maximize the benefit so that can be from anything from you know the visual of the buildings making sure that the buildings have limited visual impact that they're screened that they're biodiversity gains in that location as opposed to negative components i mean you might think that putting a building on a green field isn't necessarily a green, but actually if you green up around the building, you can actually improve the biodiversity. It's about making sure that the social impact is strong within that local community as well. And that's in terms of, you know, not just the number of jobs you're creating, but the quality of jobs. It's about reducing impact in terms of traffic movements. It's about ensuring that you're laying on appropriate ways for people to get to work through bus services, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And then of course, when the employees are in those buildings, making sure they've got the right level of amenity. I mean, this has changed out of all recognition. Some of the buildings now, you know, you've got external green gyms, you've got internal health facilities, high quality canteens, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes, you know, you have gyms in the buildings as well and that type of thing. And of course, if you have a larger building and the buildings have got bigger and bigger and bigger and those spaces have become more flexible. So that gives businesses opportunity for growth, but it also enables them to amalgamate if you like a larger mass of staff with higher grade staff advancement opportunities, you get higher grade management in those places. Mm. The staff feel more loved and it just creates a high sense of well-being, mm. notwithstanding the fact that actually mezzanine floors, by way of example, are rentalized at about half of the ground floor rental tone. So in themselves, you can create a bigger building and it doesn't necessarily have to cost the customer any more money mm. to occupy a more modern space. And in terms of the wider developments, you, mean, you touched on traffic and power early on. Obviously, that brings us on to EV charging, which is clearly becoming a big, big theme, <laughs> not just within domestic vehicles, but clearly within fleets as well, yep. delivery trucks and other logistics vehicles. How are you adapting to that? Who's paying for it? And are you going to get the premiums? It's a really, really important point. I think it's one of the most important points in terms of future look into how logistics in the UK and will be in the future. And so about 18 months ago now, we employed one of the leading lights from the National Grid, we think is probably one of the biggest power brains in the UK. He was the head of strategy and new product development, brought one of the interconnectors into the UK from Norway. And we've been doing a lot of work with him. I mean, there's probably not a single logistics building in the UK right now of any scale that is capable of fulfilling future government requirements in terms of EV. So if you overlay all the requirements of you know, increased mechanisation in terms of mechanical handling equipment, etc., you assume that the majority of cars that employees use to go to the buildings are going to be yeah. EV, and then you assume the same for vans and then articulated vehicles, 
the power requirements are off the scale. Now, look, the national grid is not going to be able to respond to that. I think what's really interesting is there's going to be... That's an interesting business opportunity for companies like yours. Exactly right, because there's going to be an increased level of pressure placed on the private sector to deliver solutions here. And that's going to need to be in terms of renewables. So we are now putting in small power centers into our parks where we have the ability to buy in the most effective, greenest form of renewable energy, but also to produce green energy. And of course, one of the instant wins is that we have the largest roofs in the UK of any building type. And therefore, we can put significant solar. I mean, the building we just talked about Littlebrook a bit earlier, the building we created for Amazon there has got 3.5 megawatts of power that's being produced from the roof of that building. By that's quite a lot. You think England's really cloudy and you're not going to get much from those sorts of facilities, but you get the modern PVs are actually exactly. very, very good, very efficient. Even if there's cloud, absolutely right. So there's a lot more that we can do in that regard. But the private sector has got to step up to the challenge of this. And I think that we're already seeing this coming through in terms of planning consents as well. And I think that it will move that way where there'll be a relationship between the ability to deliver renewable power and the level of on-site renewables and capture of planning consents. Mm. And what are the customers telling you? To what degree is this being driven by them, particularly on the retail e-commerce point where, again, that's obviously much more expensive now given fuel costs, given the various ULES type schemes that different cities are imposing on people. They're having to adapt to electric vehicles. To what degree is that going to start becoming a critical part of a tenant requirement? Yeah, so we're putting solar into all of our buildings now, all newly developed buildings. But in terms of charging? We're putting car charging in as well. But it's quite interesting, uh, you know, it's about adapting to the rate of requirement. Mm. So some of our customers will say, well, please don't put electric charging into all of the car bays because we're so far off that we don't need them. So you have to put in the infrastructure to enable you to backfill that requirement in time. But it's obviously something that's going to grow and grow and grow. And it's having the infrastructure to do that that's the key. Yeah, absolutely. And how are you seeing, I mean, just going back to retail, we've obviously seen a few big changes in retail over recent years with some of the big brands like Adidas and Nike wanting to become much more direct consumer focused. So mm-hmm. in Nike's case, they're actually taking product out of third-party retailers and saying, look, if you want to buy a pair of our trainers, you come to us, you go to our store, you go to our website, yep. which makes sense from a customer acquisition and a data perspective, margin protection. How do those sorts of changes affect you? Or maybe they don't. I think they play to our strengths because, you know, I mean, okay, we are now creating small box, last mile urban, whichever tag you want to put onto it. And they're often interchangeable, but the vast majority of our platform is very large logistics warehousing that you know they're flexible typically Mm. you only get automation in buildings of over 300,000 square feet and the reason I mention this I think is that to be able to deliver direct to customer in the way that you just described requires automation it requires essentially sort of mini data center to be held within the building to capture those orders it's much more efficient and you can deal with problems better if your software engineers are sitting next to the hardware engineers that are controlling the mechanization because if something goes wrong on either side, then they can adapt to that. You don't want to be driving out the M1. Exactly. And, you know, that's quite sophisticated to be able to do B2B and, you know, to deliver to the doorstep of a customer requires quite a sophisticated supply chain framework and ordering system and fulfillment system to be able to move and deliver 
quickly and efficiently. And so you need these bigger buildings to be able to achieve that. And that's exactly what we deliver. And how do dynamics moving when it comes to returns? Because that's been the other big, big challenge for e-commerce, particularly in the most recent years where people are now starting to charge for things they weren't charging for before postage and returns and other things i think that that was inevitable i mean it was probably a case of you know once you're on the hook psychologically with e-commerce orders then the retailer can then start charging you for returns in the long term i mean it was never going to last that returns were free forever in my view and are you having to the buildings that you're thinking about now how different are they from even three four years ago they're not massively different i would say look In their simplest form, they're big, flexible, rectangular spaces. They have got taller. There is, I would say, you know, currently an optimal point in terms of height. Mm. And there's a relationship between height and ground floor area, right? So they've kind of got up to 30 meters high. I think outside of the true urban environment, if you go to somewhere like Tokyo, you... I was just about to say, Japan used to be the only place on the planet where these would make sense. Yeah, you get sort of a 10-story high building. And obviously that's driven by the value of the land and density of use. But outside of... Because often people remember the shift to double-decker sheds with the fall of Brixton, and sometimes people wrongly say, well, it's because they started doing multi-storey sheds. Well, that was horizontal subdivision, okay, as opposed to sort of vertical subdivision, as in by occupier. And of course, what happened there was you had to get big articulated lorries up a circular ramp, which in itself takes land, and then the lorries got stuck... And of course, your slab on the first and second floor have to be very, very strong to be able to withstand the weight of the lorry and the loading that you would put up there, which you would normally put on the ground floor. So, you know, it has challenges in relation to the cost framework and the way those buildings are being used. I think that model outside of a very, very high land value is not really very viable. And as I said earlier, what most of our occupiers prefer to have single occupancy and control their site. But I think where you do see subdivision is, for instance, in the third-party logistics space, where they will compartmentalize a building with sort of internal walls. And you can move them around. I mean, they're not you know permanent fixtures. And otherwise, yes, horizontal subdivision, but within your ownership. So I think the fascinating thing about this is that, whilst I mentioned earlier that often mezzanines are rentalized at half of the ground floor rental tone, if you think logically about it, that harks back to the retail world, which span out of retail warehousing, okay, which the same principle, the mezzanines were sort of at a lower rate of the ground floor. And of course, the, the idea there was that you had to encourage customers up to the first floor to get them to shop. And it was the same in a department store by way of example. Yeah, yeah. So you never paid the same rate in terms of ITZA on a high street store on the first floor as you would at the front of the ground floor. But the principles doesn't apply in an office building. Okay, you typically pay more rent the higher you go up in an office building. If you were to block yeah, out yeah. the windows, black them out, you would charge the same rent on every floor in an office building, right? Because you're employing people to go up there. That's exactly what people do in a logistics building. So actually, it's illogical to charge half rent of the first floor. And so some of our occupiers, you know, see this as a real opportunity, which doesn't exist in any other traditional area mm. of business sector. No, it'd be a uh, for me to not ask you how the current economic situations impacting the business and everyone in the market has undergone a degree of repricing over the last 12 months your leasing's held up really well and obviously as a public business you're going to have fluctuations in the share price but how more broadly is the current economic backdrop affecting what you're doing and how is that repricing manifesting with the sorts of deals you will or won't do Uh, i would 
sum it up by saying massively. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I would also sum it up by saying it's all about macro. Now that will change. And obviously the market woke up to the impact of inflation and what was going to happen as a consequence. Ooh, inflation and interest rates were two things no one had heard about for 15 years. <laughs> well, if you've been around as long as I have, you were in tune with that. But, you know, I remember working through redundancy in 91 and obviously had fun during the GFC as well, where we worked pretty hard for not much reward. But I think that every recession is different. And I know we're not in a recession now and we're probably destined for one. But look, essentially what happened was everyone woke up to the increased cost of capital and there was a race up the yield curve. And I think that, you know, particularly the stock market right now is paranoid. It's only looking up, it's not looking down. I think that the fundamentals of businesses have been overlooked to some degree in terms of what they can deliver long term. And of course, real estate is a long-term asset class. You know, we're not set up to deliver short-term performance. Mm. I think that the market... But also some... But, uh, sorry to interrupt you, Colin, but I, I suppose a lot of investors also would just tag anything bad to real estate against UK economy. And I say, UK economy, a bit rubbish, will mark you down as well. Well, you might say that, but I think otherwise, I think there's quite a lot of opportunity here, particularly now from a rebased position. Mm. Actually from the conversations we're having, there's a lot of dry powder looking to get into you know, the more attractive sectors and subsectors of real estate. And ultimately, your income is strong, the leasing is strong, the operational performance is exactly where it was. Well, it's improving, partly off the back of our development activities. We're doing exactly what we said we would do. So from what we set out to achieve and what we told the market we would be doing, we're absolutely delivering on that right now. So you're absolutely right. It's about rebase values. And this kind of talks to the focus on NAV for shareholders in the European markets mm. and the way that analysts think over here, which is quite different than in the USA, where there's a much bigger focus on recurring income, which of course is what REITs were set up to be. So these are the, and what Colin's referring to there is where analysts get very, very obsessed by marking listed company share prices against the actual net asset value of the buildings and take great glee in producing these trendy graphs each week showing how good or bad you're doing depending on where you are on that graph. Exactly. And look, real estate's a long-term asset class. You know, Warren Buffett was a great believer in backing a high-quality management team in an area which had structural benefit and backing it for the long term. And I think that's absolutely valid for real estate. If you're too short-termist in your thinking, it just doesn't work for real estate. So sometimes you've got to have the strength of your convictions and keep your head down doing what you know is right for your business rather than being swayed by short-term thinking. And I believe that that will stand us in a good stead in the mm. longer term. Before we go, a bit of personal background. So you've been for a few interesting businesses over the years. You've worked in agency, you've set up different investment vehicles. How did you get into the game? So I left school after my A-levels and didn't want to go into further education. I'd had enough and went into banking. Hadn't intended to stay there very long and blinked. And I think five years had passed me by, or I think maybe even longer, at which point I was ready to go back to education. But only after I'd had a stint in property. And I left banking to go and work with Sir Terence Conran at Conran Roach. And we developed Butler's Wharf next to Tower Bridge. And there were some other really interesting projects, including working with the Milton Keynes Development Corporation in Resi, et cetera, et cetera. That whetted my appetite for property. And so I did a vocational degree, urban estate management at Kingston. And having come out of that, you know, the job market was pretty tight, but I 
fortunately got a job in my sandwich year working for Wetherill Green Smith, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And it was a great proving ground. And I met my business partner, James Dunlop, who's been with me ever since. And in our first week, he said to me, we're going to work together in the future. And I said, well, we already are. And I went home and told my wife that I was working with either a stalker or a visionary. And I still haven't worked out which one it is yet. But um, <laughs> 27 years later, we're still working together. So I think it's worked out pretty well. But that was the inspiration. And then we set up the commercial property arm of Smith Score in 2000. And then span out of that to create our own agency business for a short period of time. And that led me to meet the Tritax guys that originally were creating tax-based commercial property investment products. So a lot of those things wore out at the end of the 90s, didn't they, a lot of those? Correct. I mean, obviously, the government's now created new tax havens in these free ports, which has a similar sort of basis. I think the key thing really there is that it's really important from a government point of view as opposed to a political point of view that there's consistency in backing those sorts of initiatives for the longer term. And you don't keep moving the goalposts because you don't get long-term investment and belief confidence in a market if you keep changing the rules mm. and what else would you have whoever the next government is do for growth i think they need to invest in the things that great britain's great at really we've got world-class universities we've got incredible talent in this country you know we need to harness it and try to keep as much here as possible particularly in terms of tech you know, you've seen the evolution of this, you know, in Cambridge, Oxford, in the lab space, et cetera, but mm. lots of different industries. I think the other area is power. We need investment. I mean, significant investment in some of these areas. You know, we're being left behind. I mean, our management company business has been involved in working to get, you know, the UK's first gigafactory launched at Blythe. Yeah. You probably read about that in the press, which we won't get yeah. stuck into now, but... You know, it's that level of support that's needed. And if the government doesn't help and commit to support in those areas, then we will be left behind. And Europe and the rest of the world is sort of leaping ahead in the meantime. Particularly with the IRA that they've introduced in the States, Inflation Reduction Act I'm talking about. Exactly. And there's a big, big debate now on subsidies and how we move that forward. I guess the problem, column with those things is that the payback period is so long that it exceeds any short-term political well, cycle that gets back to what we were saying about you know having the strength of your convictions earlier and as a business we do and that's kind of what the governments have to buy into and not necessarily just invest for a political term hmm. well look it's been fascinating to chat to you thanks so much for coming in and it's been great to hear a bit more about tritax and about where you're going with tritax big box reap you can subscribe to propcast search propcast on apple amazon spotify and some of Colin's other tenants online. You can add some comments. You can send us some recommendations for future guests. Thanks very much for listening. I've been Andrew Teacher, and we'll see you again very, very soon.